welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Hi, my name is Hadessa, and I'll be reading Revelations 19, 6, 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come for the and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb, And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Man, um, y'all, sometimes just hearing kids read the Bible makes me cry, you I'm like, um, that's a great job being brave, being up here and reading. Uh, how are we? Good, good. Uh, okay, week three of Advent. Uh, once again, for this series, uh, rather than thinking about our first coming uh, of Christ and what that brought to us, uh, we're looking ahead and focusing on the Advent that we're currently awaiting, uh, thinking about what the second coming of Jesus is going to bring to us. And so we're in a season of hopeful expectation as Christians, and to long for the second coming is a good desire of our hearts and one that will not be deferred. And so the first week we talked about hope, uh, and last week we touched on peace and how at the second coming, uh, Jesus won't just stop the bad, he will actually reverse the bad and begin to fix everything that was broken. And so whatever loss you had in Christ, it will be restored if you are in Jesus. And so tears will produce trees, or loss will produce life, or sorrow will produce salvation, or suffering will produce this splendor, or poverty will produce pleasures, or lament will produce laughter. These promises are all throughout the scriptures, y'all. That Jesus will actually take all of the suffering and make it good. That righteous suffering becomes an ironic investment to produce restoration plus glory. And so suffering, it becomes the deposit and the receipt of what you will one day receive. This promise, it almost seems too good to be true, and yet it's the promise of Christ for those who are believers in Jesus. And so now, this week, we're focusing on love. Uh, Love, the first coming, was the love of God on full display, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. 
But the second coming is actually love fully realized, that you will finally realize one day just how much it is that God loves you, and it will be more than your human hearts and heads right now could even conceive of. In fact, if you felt the love of God right now, it would actually undo you, is what the scriptures would say. And so if last week was hard to believe that all things will be restored to you fully, this week should actually be even harder to believe. And yet, it is a promise of Scripture that one day, if you trust in Jesus as Savior, you will have love that is incomprehensible. You will, as Paul prayed, know the love of God that surpasses knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. You will know something that is unknowable. The love of God is what you will have. Now, just like last week where I think we had to redefine peace in order for us to get a a better, a bigger picture of what the second coming of Christ will bring, I think that this week it would be wise for us to redefine love as well. Because for most in our culture, love is just a feeling. It is something that happens inside of you when you feel a certain way towards someone or towards something. Love in our culture is mainly expressed as an emotion. Biblical love is very different, though. Biblical love, while it does not negate the emotion, emotions are definitely a part of love, it expands the idea of love into a much more masterful canvas on our soul. The picture that the Bible paints of love is so much bigger than simply that of an emotion. And it becomes an overwhelming picture if you allow your soul to meditate on it. Love, biblically speaking, is much more of an action instead of just an emotion. John chapter 15, verse 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for a friend. That is an action, something that you do. Or the famous 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the love passage in the Bible. It says that love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant and on and on. All of these are action-oriented things, not feeling-oriented things only. And so even what I already quoted, for God so loved the world, what was the evidence of his love that he gave? He did an action And so since without realizing it, you and I are often corporately discipled by our culture into a version of love that is short of the biblical definition, I want you to realize how your understanding of love might be very shallow and maybe even very selfish. We would never call it selfish, and we may not even realize that we're operating in a mode of selfishness. But if you think about it, our version of love is very famished. It is like, I feel a certain way around them, and so I love them. It's a feeling of love. Making the feeling of love more about what you feel 
more about how you feel, which is very self-focused, instead of them focused, and how they can feel through you and how you act towards them, which is others focused. Our version of love is how does it make me feel? This is how I feel about this. I feel this way around them. Focusing love on I, which is selfish. Y'all tracking with me? This is often what you and I define as love. Now, once again, I'm not saying our definition is wrong. Love does involve feelings, even our feelings. Our definition just isn't full. It's often about how we feel only, and it lacks how they feel, and our love often lacks actions. So when God says that he loves you, it isn't just that he feels a certain way towards you. It is also that he acts a certain way towards you. In fact, often the actions of love produce the deeper feelings of love. When we do the actions of love, our emotions tend to follow. That's why we do something like sing songs of affection to God or worship God on a Sunday morning. Often you want a deeper feeling of your intimacy with Jesus, but we're not doing the actions that would accompany the feelings. So we're not doing the actions of singing and then wondering why we don't have the feelings of love. Or we're not doing the actions of service and wondering why we're lacking. I mean, the same is true, maybe think about it in something like marriage. Often a lot of us want deeper feelings in marriage, yet you're pursuing your spouse 168 times less than when you were dating. And you wonder why the emotions or the feeling has faded over time. You're not doing the actions of love that produce the feeling in the first place. But that's for the Song of Songs series, all right? Different sermon. Love is fuller than we tend to meditate on. Y'all feeling me? And so love is not just a heart thing. In the scriptures, it is a heart, soul, mind, and especially a strength or an actions thing. God overwhelmingly feels affections of love towards you, but he is also overwhelmingly sacrificial, kind, gentle, patient. He acts in service of love towards you as well, saints. This sort of love, this end times love, this second coming love is what it is going to look like one day between you and God. God loves you more than you can ever imagine, saints of Jesus Christ. God initiated this love affair between you and him, and the scriptures say that he is the one that will bring it to completion as well. He is coming for his bride, and he loves you with emotion, and he loves you with action, and he is going to prove it for all of eternity, saints. We often think about our worship of God in eternity, and yes and amen, that will happen. But you do realize that God will be acting in love towards you for all of eternity as well. This is the promise for those of us in Christ. Let's dive into our text, okay? Verse 6, it begins with this really cool idea of community in worship. They're singing like so loud, it's like scary loud. Right? Like it's almost like, like visual is how powerful the singing is becoming. It's so powerful that at the end of the text that Hadessa just read for us, John becomes like overwhelmed and he starts falling down and like worshiping angels. And the angel's like, stop dog and start writing this again, right? Like it's this overwhelming love. Such is the power of corporate unified worship. 
It's why so many of you have felt the presence of God in worship. It's why a lot of you probably even came to faith during a worship song to sing unified truths of love to our God is overwhelming to the soul, it can often begin to feel like thunder rumbling inside of your chest. They then begin to sing these songs of hallelujah, right? And in this idea of hallelujah, this really rich biblical word, it expresses the most high praise to God. In fact, in verses 1, three, uh, four, and now six in this chapter, this word hallelujah is used, making it the very clear felt expression in this pericope. Uh, Surprisingly, that word hallelujah is nowhere else in the New Testament. Now, verses one through five, they're all singing these songs of the most high praise. They're singing hallelujah to God because of the salvation that came to them because of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in verse 5, it says, Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, small or great, they will be saved. That is what is bestowing, what is calling upon their hallelujahs. Now in verse 6, they give us two more reasons why we should praise God, why we should lift up the most high word that we can think of to God. One of them is that he is almighty, right? He rules over everything, The other reason is that it's because he is the God who has arranged from eternity past for the marriage of his son to the bride of Christ, those washed pure by the blood of the lamb. So the previous hallelujahs, they all point back to the salvation that was experienced by us on earth. That's verses one through five. But verse six points forward toward the anticipation of the marriage of the lamb and us the church of God. And so God saved us from the penalty of sin and this should overwhelm our souls to praise. It should cause us to sing a hallelujah song. But God is also doing more than just delivering you. He's doing more than just bringing you peace and fixing everything that is broken. God is going to marry you. I'm sorry. What? Like, we should sing the most high praise because Jesus reigns. Look at the text there. That is obvious and clear. He's in control, right? He is ruling over everything. He reigns. He is the exalted one. That means the lifted up one. So we should give God glory and give God praise because he is good and ruling. All of that makes sense to our minds and our hearts. But we're also singing the most high hallelujah and John is overwhelmed and starts worshiping angels because God liked it and he put a ring on it. This is honestly a crazy thought, y'all, right? Uh, The desire for marriage is in most people and those who desire marriage don't just want some raggedy old union, they want bliss, right? Now, whether we find traces of it on earth or not, why is it that most people desire this? You do know that most of your desires are placed in your soul by God himself on purpose. Almost all of your desires were placed there by God. The problem is, is our flesh and our enemy usually allow those desires to terminate on lesser things. So we never take the fullness of those desires. You desire marriage because you were designed for marriage. 
and not just some raggedy old marriage, the marriage that you desire, no matter how dope your spouse may be on earth or no matter whether or not you have a spouse, the marriage that you desire is actually still coming, saints. When Jesus returns, he will unveil the greatest love story that has ever been told. And at the end of this story, you and I are adopted as sons and wed together as his bride, wrapped up in the beautiful love story of God. I don't see enough smiles, so let me meditate on this a little bit more, okay? Um, Marriage is a really interesting love because it's a love of choice. Uh, you're kind of forced to love your biological family, right? And while at times, even those relationships can be fractured because of the fallen nature of the world around us, for most, it really isn't that hard to love their children. It's innate, right? Um, It's not very hard to love your siblings. Even when they're ratchet and wild, there's still something inside of you that makes you kind of have to love them, right? Uh, They may be annoying, but you love them nonetheless. All of these relationships are God-placed. You didn't choose those relationships. But marriage is a love of choice, much like friendship, actually. You don't have to marry anyone, making it a very sacrificial and sacred love. I don't think y'all feel me. God did not need to be married to you. Right? God did not need to choose you to be married to him. You are not naturally a part of God's family. You are not a son or daughter born from the most high God. That is not who we are in nature. And yet God chose you. You, right? He said the words that many of us desire to hear, will you marry me? I want a lifelong, no, I want an eternity-long love intimacy relationship with you. God loves you and chose with actions and with feelings to love you forever. This perfect marriage, remember the Song of Songs series this last year? This sort of love is the love that is coming for us, saints. I don't see enough smiles, so let's meditate on this some more. Let's try a different angle here, okay? Uh, In Jewish culture, almost every wedding began with a procession to the bride's house. And then these people would go, they would get the bride, and then that was followed by this return to the house of the groom for the marriage feast. So remember in week one, where Jesus said in John that he's going to prepare a room or a place for us, and then he's going to come back to then bring us to his house. That is a picture of a Jewish wedding. So the second coming, the church is now engaged to Christ by faith. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are currently betrothed or engaged to Christ. And now we await the second coming where the heavenly groom will come for his bride, return, take us with a bunch of hosts and lead us back to his house in heaven to dwell there forever. This is the marriage feast for eternity. This is the picture that is being painted. I still don't see enough smiles. Let's meditate on this some more. (laughs) Notice in this passage, if you have your physical Bibles, you can actually see it a lot more clearly. But I'll throw it on the screen here too. Uh, It's very small, okay? I intentionally did that. We won't exegete this. But I want you to see what's happening here. Notice how this is written as poetry. Poetry is the language of what? 
of love, of deep emotions, of deep expressions. Now, the first poetry in the Bible is when God makes Adam and Eve. So the first language of love that you see is when God is handcrafting humanity. This is where the intimacy is. There's no poetry about the trees and the mountains and the lakes. and the, There's no poetry about the night and the, the morning, the stars and the sky. The poetry exists between you and God. This is God's affection towards you. The second poetry in the Bible, though, is when Adam sees Eve and he's like, ding. Hey, Ma, what's up, right? Adam loves... Uh, which God then forms marriage as the vehicle to express Adam's love to Eve. You track him? But not just the vehicle, it's also the foreshadowing. For God knew as he painted the picture of human love, he was beginning a much greater masterpiece of a heavenly love that he desires with you. So it's no mistake then that the second poem in the Bible, the second language of love is that of two humans entering into the covenant of marriage. But the very last language of love in the Bible, the last poem is the Bible is a song that is sung about you and I's marriage to Christ Jesus for eternity. That's the last poem in the Bible. That's the last language of love in the scriptures and is sung by everyone who can see it. The elders, the angels, the nations, the tribe, we ourselves are entering in and it's thundering across heaven. That is the picture of God's love. God wants marriage-like intimacy with you. Saint, this is an absurd thought. The last thing that the church is called in the Bible is a bride. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, it ends just three or four verses later, and it's called a bride because this is the type of intimacy that God wants with you eternally because God loves you with actions and emotions. This is wild. Now, for many of us, the idea of marriage, I think, can be really hard because we're single and we've been waiting for marriage, but it has often avoided us, maybe much to our pain and our frustration. For others, maybe you've experienced broken marriages or are currently in the midst of a broken marriage. For some, I think it can be hard because you're in a good marriage, but unfortunately that good marriage has perhaps begun to drain your hope for an even better marriage. Regardless of our marital status, this can feel like peace on earth. It can almost feel ethereal, like pie in the sky, right? Or wedding cake in the sky is what this can feel like. You may feel like marriage is a tough topic, but that's exactly why meditating on the coming of Christ and receiving this coming by faith and hoping for this coming is so dang important, y'all. You see, Christ was never married. You're like, I've been waiting so long to get married. Jesus has been waiting for 14,000 years, right? Actually all of eternity. He gets the waiting, y'all. He understands the broken covenants and the broken promises. Such is his relationship with humanity throughout all of eternity. There's a waiting and a longing and a hope that has been broken over and over and over again. Jesus gets what it's like to be in the midst of a broken marriage, which is why he himself went out to prepare the way for a marriage that will never break ever again. 
Listen, I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus' first earthly miracle was done at a wedding. And now the last picture in the Bible that you get is at a wedding. Like poetry was at the start and the end of the Bible, so marriage is at the start and the end of Jesus' ministry in the Bible. Everything is pointing to God's desire to express his love for you, saints. This is the story of Scripture. You may ask, man, what's taking God so long? What's taking so long to receive this type of love? Well, love is an action. Remember, love is patient, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. Jesus is waiting for the full bride to come in. Every tongue, tribe, and nation for everyone to enter in. He's waiting to receive full love from us and to be able to give full love to us. What I'm saying is, if Jesus would have came 21 years ago, I would not be in the kingdom married to God forever. So I'm real glad he waited. Waited to redeem my soul, saints, and he's waiting to redeem the full bride of Christ. So I praise God for his patience, even though that patience means a little bit more suffering, a little bit more longing, a little bit more need to practice the discipline of hope, a little bit more faith to really receive this love, to say, God, you fulfilled every other promise. Why would you not fulfill this one? And while I don't know how long we will wait, I do know that God is faithful to his promises. The second coming, the marriage feast of the lamb, it is coming because God loves you, feelings and actions. This idea should make us faithful to our coming spouse, y'all. It should make us long to have marriage fidelity to have intimacy with our King Jesus, to be hopeful and longing for the coming bridegroom, not settling on lesser loves and thereby committing adultery with, that who, with he who we are engaged to. The idea of marriage to God is one of my favorite pictures in the Bible, actually. In fact, I actually have a tattoo on my ring finger in Hebrew that says Bride of Christ. Only the people in like the first two rows can see it. It's too small for y'all back there, okay? <laughs> Right, But I did this because I was overwhelmed with this idea many, many years ago. Uh, when I first came to Christ, I had all of this problem with uh, a desire to be wanted and an desire to even de de uh, express that love towards others. And it led to me dating all these different people all throughout my, my really early adult life. And I was dating and dating and dating and probably breaking hearts, breaking hearts, breaking hearts and having my heart broken over and over again as well, not understanding the beauty of covenant relationship. And when I finally began to understand that, I did what every zealous, godly, young college student does. I made a vow that I would not date anyone until I found my spouse. <laughs> and by God's grace, I actually fulfilled it, okay? But I was like, I ain't dating for the next like five years. It was only like a year, okay? But... So thought that counts. And in that time, I began to think about what does it mean that God is our spouse? Like, what does it mean that I am a bride of Christ? It's really interesting in the scriptures, very rarely does it call us daughters of God. It almost always calls us sons of God because in that culture, the son is the one that received the inheritance. So as women, you may have to kind of understand in that culture, oh, I am like a son in that I receive an inheritance. Well, I am, as a male, like a bride. 
There is somebody that will lay down his life for me. There is somebody that will pursue me. There is somebody who will wash me with the water of his word. There is somebody that acts as my perfect husband. I am desired by the God of the universe. This is overwhelming, y'all. And so I tattooed it. Because the idea was, while this marriage, though I love my wife dearly, is temporary, this is permanent, this is closer to my heart and my skin than this one is, this marriage will one day fail with all of the rest of humanity, but my marriage to God never will. In fact, in the kingdom of heaven, me and Natalie will be brother and sister in Christ on that day as we prepared each other to be received by God himself. This is an unbelievable picture, y'all. This is the marriage that God longs to have with you. And so I want to use this to kind of draw some application here, okay? Uh, As we mentioned, John's response seems really odd, right? He's looking at this picture, he's hearing it, and it's like overwhelming, And so he's caught up in this daze, and he just starts worshiping this angel, right? It's honestly really crazy. And I know that in Austin, Texas, at church, in a high school, on a Sunday, it's hard to feel this type of love that I'm talking about fully, maybe even partially. But if we can ascend with our minds just a little bit, if we can receive in our hearts just a little bit, if we can believe in our souls just a little bit, then maybe, just maybe, we can feel a little bit of what John is feeling here if you haven't felt that already this morning. Maybe you can feel a little bit of God's love for you and the longing of that coming. Maybe you can realize how unfaithful you've been to this love and yet God still pursues you anyway. Maybe you can realize just a little bit how overwhelmingly affectionate God is towards you despite the fact that it's hard for your emotions to feel that. Maybe you can remember the actions of God and believe that he feels and acts towards you with love. You see, I think that we often don't feel this type of love and maybe we don't even really care to receive this type of love if we're honest with ourselves because we do just what John did here. We bow down to the wrong things. Because we're not looking forward to this love, we settle with earthly loves, lesser loves. And so angels become enough. Marriage becomes enough. Success becomes enough. Comfort becomes enough. Sex, even though it is a cheap momentary substitution, a cardboard tasting picture of the intimacy that you will receive it becomes enough. We worship the wrong things. So rather than seeing these things as a gift of God, we begin to treat them like God. And family, there's only one way that I know to overcome this temptation is to say exactly what the angel said to John. Don't do this. Worship God. And I know of no better way than worshiping God than remembering his first coming and then looking forward to the second coming of our King Jesus. So track with me here for a moment. Notice all of the emphasis on clothing in this passage. Over and over and over again, there's this idea of being clothed in Christ. Why? Well, because in the first marriage in Scripture, And in Jesus' painful proposal to us on the cross, there was a lot of garments which were painting pictures of what was to come. 
Why did Adam and Eve realize that they were naked and try to cover themselves with fig leaves there in the garden as they realize their shame? You see, what happens in that story is that God then comes and he clothes them with the skins of animals, thereby sacrificing an animal to cover their shame, a picture of what was to come. When God was clothing up their shame, God knew that a greater clothing was going to come one day as well. You see, those skins of an animal were because of a sacrifice. But the garments of the saints, well, those, this text says, was granted to us. That means given to us, meaning these clothes also came from someone else. And that someone else is our bridegroom, Jesus. At the cross of Christ, Jesus was naked, ridiculed, stripped naked and bare, covered in shame. Jesus, his clothes were gambled over as they beat his dying body. Jesus was stripped naked and covered with our shame so that one day we might be covered with the garments of righteousness. Those garments that we receive in heaven, the wedding feast that is coming, were because of a sacrifice of a non-married man on earth. That's why you're wearing what you're wearing one day. Christ, the better lamb, he died that he might cover you in the covering of love because he loved you, emotion and action. He laid down his life cold and naked that you might be embraced by the warm affections of his love forever. The moment that God created the first marriage, y'all, you do realize he was already alluding to what it would take to create the final marriage. You see, in that first marriage, God put Adam to sleep and pulled from his rib to create his bride. And through the rib of Christ, as he was put to sleep by death and pierced by the spear that came into his rib, and as blood came gushing out of his side, at that moment, he was creating the new bride of Christ, the church, that whoever believes in the blood of Jesus would be wed to him into a marriage feast that we would eat for all of eternity y'all. This is the marriage of Christ. God knew exactly what it would cost to be one with you. And he paid the cost because God loves you, emotions and actions. And he proved his love, his love for you. Listen, all of us, uh, they want a love from someone that would do whatever it takes to behold us. All of us want to experience that, y'all. You have it in Christ, saints. You have it in Jesus. It was purchased. He came, and he's coming again, (coughs) y'all. Excuse me. This revelation picture, you do realize it's not just a picture, right? It's not an analogy. It's what John is physically seeing with his eyes. Because Jesus died as a single man, there was a purchase at that moment, and you are now the, blood of, or the bride of Christ, and he is coming again. It is not good for man to be alone. A man should leave his father and hold fast to his wife. Jesus left his father and is holding fast to you, and he will not be alone because of his love for you, y'all. The love of God is overwhelming if you let your soul meditate on it for a moment. 
And now, saints, we should do whatever it takes to remain in this love. We should be, as this text says, doing the works of love, making ourselves ready to receive this love. Because even though the garment was from Christ himself, somehow the works that we produce become the garments that we wear as well. Meaning this earth is not no longer unnecessary or, or empty or everything that we do, God sees and will reward and they become a part of our love with God forever. How wild is that, y'all? Meaning heaven is coming, but earth is not pointless. There is beauty in the midst of this. He will dress you, but your works of love, even you showing desire for this love will be a garment as well. Do whatever it takes to stay in this love. That's the type of love that your soul is looking for. Don't forsake this love for lesser ones, y'all. Receive the love of God. You may ask, okay, well, how do I receive this love? There are hundreds of ways, but let me give you one to close out our time that it says even in this passage. Read the love letters of God written to you, a.k.a. the Bible, right? Notice how it says once again, like, write this. The angel says, the words of God, it says, the prophecy of, of God, which is telling us about the beauty of Jesus. Like God wants you to know how much he loves you. He's like, hey, John, get up. Like, like I need the people to see this picture that's coming, write this down. So you and I probably should read it to be able to see how much God loves us. That is one of the ways that we pursue God. One of the ways that we remember the love of God we listen to the prophecies of God, which by the way, this is the testimony, right? It says of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All that means is that any prophecy that is not about Jesus is heresy, not prophecy. Any prophet that's pointing to themselves or even to you above Jesus, they're not saying the words of God. All prophecy is always trying to center our affections around Jesus because the entire Bible is about Jesus and trying to point you towards Jesus. Do whatever it takes to remain in Jesus, y'all. This is what it's saying over and over and over again. There's hundreds of ways to receive the love of God. It's why we're here this morning, y'all, to remember the love of God. Walk in it, remember it, hope for the love that is coming. And until he returns, let us continue to remind one another of this love eternal. Your soul was created for marriage. Yes. Marriage is coming, y'all. Let us remind each other of that until it comes. Amen? Amen. 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 Hey, I love you guys like crazy. Let's pray together. Yeah, um, for God so loved the world. God, I confess on behalf of my brothers and sisters, on behalf of myself, Jesus, how often I forget about your love. It is so often that I am wrapped up in all of these lesser loves that I forget you love me. You lay down your life for me. You desire a wedding feast forever. I will be married to you. And marriage covenants don't get broken. Not the righteous ones. 
And you are the perfect husband who will do whatever it takes to maintain the covenant that you and I have, that we have with you forever. Marriage is coming. Would we believe that, Jesus? Would we receive that, God, that you so loved the world that you gave, that whoever believes would not perish, but would enter into life everlasting? God, I pray two things this morning. One, I want to pray for everyone who may have walked in unsure of where they were in a relationship with you. Friends, you may have come in today, you may have been coming in for weeks, and you're interested in the beauty of God. You're interested in spiritual things, the things of God. Maybe you've heard about this God, but maybe the God that was painted for you was a God of wrath, not a God of love. Maybe it was a God who was disappointed in you, not a God who would do whatever it takes to overcome your shame and disappointment. Maybe false pictures were painted and maybe today for the first time you're seeing a picture of the God who loves you. The invitation all throughout scripture is for you to enter into this love. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that he has risen the dead, if you receive God by faith, then you can be engaged to him to be married to him on that great day. At the cross of Christ, Jesus gave us a proposal. He asked us at that moment, hey, will you marry me? Will you enter into lifelong intimacy with me? And if we say, I do, I believe in you, Jesus, then you and I are engaged to Jesus. And so I pray that today you would enter into that engagement And as you enter into that, know that God will bring that love to completion. He will welcome you in one day as a son, as a bride, as a brother, as a friend. And God, I pray for all of us who have received this love. I pray, King Jesus, that you would remind us even if it's just micro reminders, even this morning, would you remind us of your love? Would you remind us, Jesus, that you love us? We love you, God, emotion and action. We confess that our love is short and yet we believe by faith you're growing it that you will continue to kindle the fires of love in our heart until we receive you. Would that be true for every person in this room, Jesus? Would you rekindle the fire where it has died? Would you fan into flame the fire that is there in our hearts? Would you receive our love and would we receive yours, King Jesus? Thank you that one day you are coming and we will receive this love forever. We praise in your beautiful name, Christ. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.